0: Well, it is good to see you all this morning, and it's true, we are better together. There's something that's exciting. My name's Chris, by the way, if you don't know me. I'm normally not doing this, but today I am. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, there is something exciting about being together. It's, it's something that has been woven into the way that God created us, I think, Because you know if you're into going to to shows or concerts and you go to that right venue and it's packed and everybody's passionate and excited about the same thing, there's just something that comes alive when people come together. Maybe you're into sports and when you go see your favorite team at home and the place is packed and rocking, there's just something that's special about that. And the same is true of our worship. The same is true when we as Christians, as brothers and sisters gather together to worship There's always something more that stirs within us when all of those little individual flames of worship within our hearts come together to form that bigger flame. So we are excited. We are excited that more and more of you are are feeling comfortable coming back and joining us here in the building. And we really hope to see even more of you next Sunday as we celebrate Easter. Uh, We are going to pause, as Mike said, our journey through the book of Acts that we've been taking together recently, and we're going to focus on the events of Holy Week. Now, of course, you all know that churches right now across the globe are remembering and celebrating this week, which was and has been and will always be the most monumental week that the world has ever known. It changed the world more than any other week in history And it culminated with Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. But today, being Palm Sunday, we're going to to start from the beginning of the story when Jesus arrived with his disciples in Jerusalem. This prophet, this miracle worker, this rabbi who had been saying and doing amazing things, as Aaron shared, uh, John said the whole city was like buzzing. They were excited because they heard this Jesus was on his way. And certainly not everyone had a full picture of who Jesus was, but the people certainly had heard the name, and and certainly they may have heard how he had cast out demons. Others may have heard how he turned water into wine or fed thousands with just a basket full of food. Some might have heard how the winds and the waves obeyed his voice. Some might have heard how lame people began to walk and how just before this blind Bartimaeus was healed. Some might have heard how Lazarus had been raised from the dead, so the city was excited that the king was on his way. This was, they must have thought, the one they'd been waiting for, the Messiah. The king is finally here and he's coming. We can see this account in every one of the Gospels. The account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This morning, we're going to look at the account in Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. I'll give you a chance to turn there, and we'll read through it in just a moment. But some of you may have vivid imaginations. Um, I don't know that I do. Jason tells me I don't have a good imagination, but what does he know? Um, but when I approach a passage like this that's really... Um, heavily narrative that's telling a series of events, I really try to kind of read through it and close my eyes and put myself there. I want to, to see and feel and experience and hear everything that was going on. I want to stand in the crowd that was just packed, and I want to imagine myself kind of peeking and trying to get a glimpse through, through other people of this king riding into town. I want to imagine myself taking off my coat and throwing it on the road before Jesus as he rode in. I want to hear the shouts around me of hosannas. I want to, I want to see the children climbing up into trees and going out into fields to, to cut down branches and bring them to put on the road in front of Jesus. I want to imagine myself as one of Jesus' disciples who, after the, the long walk from Jericho to Jerusalem must have been filled with such incredible excitement and passion when the city finally came into view. This is what we've been waiting for. Now, even, even though I like to do that, and I encourage you to do that, some of you are probably much better at it than I would be, it's hard to imagine the scope of what was going on in Jerusalem this week. This was the Passover celebration. It was the time in which all of Jerusalem, all of the Hebrews across the ancient world would flood to Jerusalem to remember what God had done, to remember how God had saved their people and led them out of Egypt. He would parted the sea and let them walk across on dry land. And every year during this time, they'd come together and celebrate that. Individuals and families would also bring lambs and other animals for Sacrifices for the atonement of sin. It was 30 years after this that a Roman, Roman governor decided to take a census. And one of the things that he wanted to find out was how many lambs were being brought to Jerusalem for the sacrificial worship during Passover. And the estimate that he came up with was a quarter of a million. A quarter of a million lambs were being brought during Passover to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So it kind of it's, its hard to imagine that. It's hard to imagine how many people that would translate into, but to say that the place was busy and bustling and, and alive would be kind of an understatement. Let's go ahead and read it together. Mark uh, 11, 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing or why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went out and found the colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and they untied it. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the tipple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Can we pray real quick? We should probably do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has the power to change us. God, and that's our prayer this morning. We pray that your spirit would be at work within us so that, Father, we, we don't just read this as a, a nice historical account or uh, we don't just think about this Sunday as the time when, when we get little souvenirs to take home and, and, and the children have the little palm branches to wave. But God, we, we want your spirit to be at work and show us what you'd have us to do in response to this message this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Mark makes it especially clear, even a little bit more than the other gospel writers, that Jesus had done his best, up to this point at least, to avoid crowds. Jesus didn't draw attention to himself on purpose. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? After all that Jesus has done, after all that he would do this coming week, is that true? Can that be right? But Mark tells us several times that Jesus would, perform a miracle or he would heal someone or he would cast demons out of someone. And what does he say? Go and don't tell anyone about this. Seems kind of strange. Several times in the book of Mark, he would instruct his disciples specifically to be silent concerning him about who he was. Even from the first chapter of Mark, when we have Jesus' first recorded miracles where he's casting out demons, he instructs them to be silent because Mark says they knew who he was. Even though probably no one else at that time had a solid grasp, the demons knew who Jesus was and he told them to be quiet. Jesus had this magnetic power, obviously, that made this, this desire to, to keep kind of on the download pretty hard. I, I mean, if you want to stay on the down low, it's, it's probably gonna be hard to do that if you're feeding thousands of people. Mark also makes that clear. After he cast out those first demons, he um, news, Mark says, spread about him quickly. And by that night, the whole town was at the door to see Jesus, and he performed miracles on countless people then. But he constantly tried to avoid crowds because he didn't want his mission to turn into a carnival. He was here for a mission, a mission that would culminate in the events of this week. He constantly hushed those who would champion his cause without really knowing what his cause was or or who he really was. Jesus, again, had a mission to accomplish, and by the end of the week, he would have done so. But here on Palm Sunday... As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, all that secrecy, all that kind of hidden and veiled nature of what Jesus had been doing so far, it was done. It was over. Jesus rode into Jerusalem as Messiah and King. He would encourage the fanfare and the public rejoicing. And he was soon to have many open confrontations with his opponents. Jesus entered the, the city today in a way that every eye turned and focused on him. How amazing it must have been. Um, just this past week, Monday and Tuesday, um, you know, we, our family has, has been having a difficult time like everyone has. We, we have been um, working a lot. We've been doing a lot in the house. We unfortunately had a, a loss in the family and we just decided we needed to get a couple days away. Right? We needed to take the kids and just go and do something fun, if for nothing, nothing else, for their sake, because they just, I mean, they're kids. How do they understand anything that's been going on lately? We just needed to spend some time focusing on each other as a family and get away. So we decided that um, when I got home Sunday night, after I got everything done here, we were going to take the kids to the Indianapolis Children's Museum. So our kids, if you've not met them or seen them, they're three and five. So we got home and we loaded up the van, and we packed little bags for them, and we said, hey, kids, do you want to go to the Indianapolis Children's Museum? And immediately, they were like, yeah, the Children's Museum! But I'm certain, our five-year-old is pretty smart, I'm certain that she had no idea what she was excited about. (laughs) She'd never heard the word Indianapolis. She had no idea what a children's museum was or what she would see or do there, but she knew it was going to be good. She knew it was going to be special. She could see that we knew it was going to be fun for her, so they were excited. And for those of you who have young children around that age or have had, or for those of you who have seen any TV show or movie ever in which a family with young children goes on a road trip, (laughs) what was the question that was asked the minute we pulled out of our driveway? Are we there yet? I mean, before we were even out of our neighborhood, how much longer? About two hours. A solid three and a half minutes pass. Are we getting close now? Nope, still about two hours. Another seven minutes pass. Has it been one hour yet? Nope, still pretty close to two hours. But they were excited. They were excited, and, and the whole way there, we went that night and stayed in a hotel, and, and we got up the next morning, and we finally pulled up to the museum, and the excitement was just, it was exploding the doors were about to blow off the van I think they were squealing and screaming and they saw the posters of superheroes and and they saw the dinosaur that's kind of on the side of the building there and they're just squealing and screaming and yelling and so excited all that to say they just it was fun they had a great time but that excitement they didn't know what they were excited about They were anticipating something amazing. They were expecting something fantastic, but they didn't really have any frame of reference for what that would look like. And I see a lot of that here in the passage. Even those closest to Jesus, they were excited. They were anticipatory. They were looking forward to this, but they really didn't have a solid frame of reference for what was actually about to take place. Even more so, this would have been the case for those people in Jerusalem who were excited. I mean, Jesus had spent years with his disciples and for the most part, they were clueless. They were clueless, John tells us, until after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended, then they started putting all the puzzle pieces together and connecting the dots and saying, oh, we get it. We see what actually happened now. It makes sense. But the people in the city there wouldn't have had any of that instruction. They just had heard about Jesus and some of the things he had done. They, of course, had been waiting for a Messiah and a king to come to Jerusalem, and they thought, at least for a time, that this was him. It's funny, some commentaries um, on this, as I studied this week, look at this first part um, with the colt and it being tied up somewhere and the disciples going to get it. And some people argue really, Forcefully, that Jesus must have had this uh, prearranged meeting with, with people. And I mean, that, that might be true. There's nothing to say that's not true. And, and Jesus must have um, told the people that, that he would be sending some, some of his followers to get it. And he gave the followers this kind of uh, password, you know, we, the Lord needs this donkey. And they were supposed to turn it over. And I mean, that's possible. I don't know why you would argue about whether or not that's true because, I mean, the opposite might be equally as true, that there's something miraculous in this, that Jesus was displaying some kind of omniscience here. He, was, uh, he, he hadn't planned for the donkey to be there. He just knew that there was a donkey there. And of course, again, as John said, the city was excited because the king was on his way. The Messiah was coming. Anyone that had a donkey in the area would have been happy to turn it over for Jesus's use especially if it was only temporary. So uh, at any rate, one of those two must be true because I, I'm pretty certain that if you went to the Oregon district, maybe just to walk around for lunch or something, you saw a bike there uh, chained up. Maybe, maybe somebody could try it this week and just let us know how it goes. Just, just, just try this. Just go up and start unchaining the bike and when someone comes out, just say, brother, the Lord needs this bike We'll get it back to you. No. I mean, something must have happened. Whether it was Jesus' preparation and planning ahead of time, or whether it was something miraculous and the people were just ready for the king to come and would have relinquished any donkey or animal or whatever they had for his use, one of the two must be true. What's more important in, in this whole passage is how many times, and Aaron touched on it, how many times... Prophecy is fulfilled, even in this short passage. How many, how many times that Jesus does something amazing and without the backdrop of the Old Testament, without the knowledge of the Old Testament, we're left just scratching our heads like, what in the world? Why is, it, why is he riding a donkey? Why does it have to be a, a donkey that's never been ridden? Why is any of this stuff going on like it is? Why are they saying Hosanna? Why are they saying blessed? He? I mean, everything, the key to it all and, and this is the same with most things in the New Testament. The key to understanding all of it is found in the Old Testament. It's in, it's in the Old Testament that we find that no one else is ever permitted to ride a king's horse or donkey. It's in the Old Testament that we find that animals that are used for a sacred purpose can never have been used for anything else. It's there that when a king is anointed. People throw their coats before him. It's there that the precise phrases are found like Hosanna, which is always, Hosanna means, by the way, save us. I mean, it's a pretty literal thing. It means save us. And in the Old Testament when it's used, it's always used, directed toward a king. We can see in Messianic Psalms the exact phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We also find in in the Old Testament in kings that when, when kings rode to war, they rode horses, for probably obvious reasons. But in times of peace, and when kings would come in peace, they rode donkeys. It's there, as Aaron touched on again this morning, that we find 700 years before these events would take place, Zechariah say, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's there we see why Jesus went directly to the temple because that's exactly what God said he would do in Malachi. And again, no one understood any of this. I mean, Jesus' disciples had been following him for years. And they didn't understand how all these, these scriptures and the, these prophecies were connecting here. When Jesus asked them to go get a donkey, they must have just thought, well, here goes something else weird that Jesus is doing that we just don't, we don't get. But they did it. And now we have the benefit of hindsight, of, of course. Jesus and his the way he, he interacted with people, changed so drastically here. He rides into Jerusalem as Messiah. He's claiming it through everything that he does. He rides into Jerusalem as a king. The fanfare would have been overwhelming, and and the people all over, the people that were there were acknowledging his kingship. You don't take your... Cloak or your coat off and throw it in a dirty, dusty, rocky ground for just a passerby. You don't even do that for your closest friend. You do that for a king. You don't cut down branches and line the road and shout Hosanna for just anybody just because you're a little excited. You do that for royalty. And that's what the people were acknowledging. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And king. It must have been nice for the disciples to finally have this almost satisfaction, I guess. From chapter 8 onward, they knew that Jesus, or at least they firmly believed that Jesus was the rightful king of Jerusalem and that they were on their way there for him to take his throne and to cast the, the Romans out on their noses and to do everything that they expected kings to do. But now the people, Across Jerusalem, we're acknowledging that as well. The religious elite were quick to respond, respond, though. They were quick to respond as they always are, as they still are today. John tells us that they started talking among themselves and saying, "Well, what do we do now? See, the whole world is going after Jesus." And he tells us they made their way to. The gates there at Jerusalem where Jesus was and where all the fanfare was going on and where these shouts of elation and praise were happening and they made their way as close as they could to Jesus and they said, Jesus, shut these people up. Stop the madness. This is blasphemy. You remember what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, that if they are quiet, the very rocks and stones will cry out in praise. The king had come. Jesus identified himself as Lord. He welcomed the messianic psalms that are sung. He acted precisely as he would entering a city. He acted precisely as a king would entering the city. And then, again, as prophesied in Malachi, he went straight to the temple. He didn't go as a tourist. He'd been there before, of course, but he wasn't dazzled by the gold. He wasn't mesmerized by the... The marble. He wasn't impressed by the huge stones. No, he was going to look around to check it all out. And tomorrow he would come back and just, again, as Malachi said, he would cleanse it. He would come. It'd be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Again, we have the benefit of hindsight, we have the benefit of having the whole picture in front of us. The problem is evident to us now that the type of king that everyone expected didn't come. The type of Messiah that everyone expected didn't come. This was a different kind of king. This was a different kind of Messiah, certainly than the one that they were hoping for. They had wanted a warrior, a conqueror, one who would come in and throw out their enemies and smash Rome, but this king was different. This Messiah was different, at least, from their expectations. Jesus didn't share the crowds or his disciples' idea of nationalistic glory or fantasy. In fact, he would already forewarned his followers three times at this point that he had come to suffer and die. He wasn't here to establish a kingdom that would rival that of Caesar's. He wasn't simply here to inhabit the throne of David and restore the, the old glory of the, the kingdom of Israel. You see, kingdoms and, and empires and dynasties have risen and fallen countless times throughout the ages. But Jesus' kingdom would outshine and outlast them all. This morning in countries and cities and villages and townships and boroughs and countrysides all over the globe, in languages innumerable, people are gathering to celebrate Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. He's more powerful than any king that's ever existed. His kingdom will outlast them all, but do you see how it's different Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. We, like the people in this account, can be led away from the true message of Christ by our own expectations. We can be quick to praise and celebrate him when the crowd does, but equally as quick to start Yelling, crucify him when the crowd turns. We can have expectations of glory and perfection and forget that our king is a different kind of king. So, where do you fit in the story? Application is still really important when it comes to just narrative passages like this. Where do you fit? Are you like maybe Jesus' followers? Maybe you are sold out to Jesus and and you have been following him and doing your best to follow him. But maybe things just aren't working out like you had planned. Maybe Jesus isn't meeting your expectations. Maybe your imaginations have gotten the better of you and, and other voices from outside the Bible and outside of the Spirit have influenced what you think Jesus should be and should do. Maybe you're like the people in, in the city itself of Jerusalem, who didn't really have a solid picture of who Jesus was, but they were intrigued. They they wanted to know more. They came and and as soon as the crowd started shouting, they started shouting as as well. As soon as, as soon as the first few people threw their coats in front of Jesus, well, they all did the same. But they never really placed their lives before Jesus. It's easy to pick up your coat and kind of dust it off and, and walk away. It seems that everyone in this story, everyone missed the point. And that's the kind of a, a theme that runs throughout everything when Jesus is teaching or, or leading or, or performing miracles or whatever he's doing, people are prone to miss the point of it all. We ought not judge too harshly because we're prone to do the same thing here today. We're prone to miss the point. I told you we went to the children's museum. We even went to the zoo the next day. Our son, Henry, who is three years old, um, he had a great time, as did our, our daughter, but I am absolutely positive, absolutely positive that his favorite part in the whole experience was when we went to the bathroom. I let him use the restroom. We washed his little hands, and then we walked toward the door, and they have one of those Air hand dryers. You know, the one with like hurricane force winds that you push. We pushed the button and it started blowing and he started laughing and screaming and squealing and he was closing his eyes and he was holding his little fat arms up there and the fat was just flapping and he was having such a good time. I thought, man, why did we spend money? I think they have these at Kroger. We're prone to miss the point. We're prone to have tunnel vision, to miss maybe the forest for the trees if you want to use the old phrase. We're still prone to seek the Jesus that fits us best, the King and the Messiah that suits our wants and desires. So what kind of king do you want? What kind of Messiah do you want? What kind of Jesus were you expecting? Were you expecting Jesus here and now in your life to be a political king who will agree with and affirm everything you believe and um, not do the same for others who believe differently? You might be disappointed are you the kind of person who might want a nationalistic king, as certainly the Israelites did, who would lift up your country or your nation, whatever it may be, often to the detriment of others? Are you wanting a warrior king who will not only crush his enemies, but will crush your enemies? Are you wanting a social justice Jesus? Are you wanting a moral Jesus? Are you wanting a religious Jesus? Are you wanting a rock star Jesus? Are you wanting a hipster Jesus? Are you wanting a homeboy Jesus? What kind of Jesus do you want? You see, just like in this account, Jesus comes as Jesus comes. We don't get to pick and choose and twist Jesus into the box that we like him to fit into I hope our prayer together this morning and this week is just Jesus. We want Jesus, simply Jesus, only Jesus. However, He comes, whatever He commands, whatever He wants for me, however, He wants to change me, I won't try and change Him. I just want Jesus, because that's how He comes. Our king is a different kind of king. I hope you can say with me, that's gonna be my prayer this week. Just give me Jesus. Change me, Jesus. Do whatever you need me to do, Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you that as we begin to celebrate this week and all that you did and all that Jesus did for us, we can be changed by it, God. As we approach your word and as as we remember, just like the Israelites remembered being led out of Egypt, we remember being led out of our hopeless situation with sin. We remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We'll remember him dying on a cross as a payment for our sins. We'll remember with joy the fact that he conquered death and rose again. But God, through it all, help us not to to be ones who would turn your message and your mission into whatever we want it to be. God, we want you to change us from the inside out. We want you to do whatever you want to do in us. Help us to pray just Jesus, simply Jesus, only Jesus, no matter what. And it's in his name we pray, amen.